Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. 14 Mission 2, San Jose Avenue. From our 901 Mission Street studios, you are listening to the San Francisco Chronicle. Driving my car, 57 minutes hadn't gotten too far. Everybody's heading for the beach. You're listening to Summer by the Bay by David Gans, my guest for today's Total SF. Gans and I have been in orbit of each other for a while. He writes Grateful Dead books and hosts two Grateful Dead radio shows. He archives the leftist marquee messages on the Grand Lake in Oakland. That's my favorite theater. He does it on a Flickr page. And Gans is a singer, songwriter, also a journalist. He gives me great feedback on my stories. But the relationship changed over the pandemic when he started a Facebook Live show every day at 4 p.m. 16 months and more than 450 shows later, he's on every day, only a few days off to go camping and get a colonoscopy. He didn't mind sharing that. He's still playing every day. When these Zoom music and comedy shows started, I thought they would be something lesser, something diluted. Now looking back, I think some of the streaming shows, I think about the Children's Fairyland benefit with Rafael Casal and David Diggs, the Heartily Strictly online event, and the E40 and Two Short Verses, I think those are going to be some of my favorite memories from the pandemic. And then we have Gans. We'll get to his story in this podcast. He started the show to make up for touring losses, but the community he's built has ended up being the most satisfying artistic experience of his career. Something positive coming out of this devastating year for entertainers. And I became a fan of his music. I was never a big Grateful Dead guy. I'm kind of using this as an entry into that band and his work and just really admire his perseverance being out there every day and committing to his art. We'll hear more Gans music, snippets from three more of my favorites at a recent streaming concert I got to watch in his uh, studio where he records. Gans has some live gigs coming up too, 5 p.m. Thursday, July 22nd at the Cannery Kitchen and Tap in Castro Valley, or check him out every day on his Facebook page, D. Gans Music. He'll be there, usually 4 o'clock, sometimes he switches the time a little. We recorded this interview in his backyard in Oakland last week. Heather Knight is off today. We'll be back for a new episode next week together. I'm Peter Hartlob, and this is Total SF. I can't afford to move out, and I can't afford to stay. There ain't no place on earth I'd rather live anyway. It's summer by the bay, summer by the bay. I can't afford to move out, and I can't afford to stay. There ain't no place on earth I'd rather live anyway. It's summer by the bay. Welcome to Total SF. David Gans, we are in your backyard after I just got to witness one of your concerts. Um, I've been watching you on Facebook through the pandemic, 
and uh, just really enjoying your music the past year. Well, thank you. I appreciate you being part of the audience. Yeah. Um, I feel like we've intersected over the years, and if you were to do a Venn diagram, there's not that much directly intersecting, but I think we're really similar in that we are curious of what's going on in our urban environment and collectors to a degree. (laughs) So um, I just feel like we keep running into each other, whether it's bedsheet signs, I'll post something, and then you'll have a bunch of stuff from a Grateful Dead show. I remember that. (laughs) Yeah, or the Grand Lake Theater marquee. You're you're my uh, uh, prime source for any history with that. Um, do you, do you love this community? You've been here and you seem to just constantly be exploring it. Well, I just, I love Oakland. I've lived in this town within two miles of this spot since 1974. Mm -hmm. And I, it's just a wonderful town. I, I'm not a big sports fan. There's a lot of Oakland that I don't do, you know, but my wife and I love to, uh, hike. So we spend a lot of time in the, in the hills above Oakland and out Mm -hmm. there behind Oakland and stuff. And I ride my bike around town as many days of the week as I can make the time to do it. And I, I do love this city. I love being around here. I love riding through the neighborhood and smelling pot everywhere I go nowadays. <laughs> do you remember, I know you're, I can't think of you anywhere except the Bay Area, but do you remember the first time that you came here? The first time, uh, either Oakland or the Bay Area? I, I do. I was born and raised in L.A., and the family came up, moved up here uh, in 1966, but I came up for a visit with my cousins who lived in Belmont in the summer of 61. And I remember uh, being taken in a car on a trip to San Francisco and my first exposure to a cloverleaf interchange, which I thought was the Flintstones freeway. Because <laughs> down in L.A. where I lived, there weren't cloverleafs because there were just ramps and stuff. And then I saw the biggest man-made structure I had ever seen in my life when we came upon the Bay Bridge. I have very vivid memories of seeing that for the first time when I was, I must, I would have been uh, seven years old then. Wow. And I remember that, and I also remember after we moved to to the Bay Area in 66, we started, you know, we'd go into the city and stuff. And I remember we were driving into the city. It just came up in the Chronicle a couple of days ago, the Sutro Baths burning down. Mm-hmm. It was like 50 years ago, or not 50 years ago. It was in, I think it was in 67. Mm-hmm. But I, there was a photo of it there, and I remember also that. The day we drove into San Francisco on a visit was the day that was happening because I, you know... They remarked on the smoke and then later found out it was the Sutro Baths. Yeah. Those are my earliest memories of the Bay Area, the Flintstone Freeway and the Bay Bridge. (laughs) Um, Musically, is this where you, you know, fell in love with music? Is this where it started or or did you start in L.A.? Well, I played the clarinet when I was a kid in, in grade school and junior high and high school. I was in school orchestras and stuff. And I learned some of the rudiments of music, but I don't. I didn't become a musician until 1969 when I wrote my first song. And I think one of the most important things about me as a musician is that the first thing I ever played on a guitar was my own song. My brother, I had an older, an older brother and a younger sister, both of whom who dabbled in guitar a little bit. So there were guitars around the house. And in this summer of 69, when I was 15, had not yet turned 16. My brother 
uh, helped me. He set a couple of my little tortured teenage poems to music, mm-hmm. and he taught me the chords. Yeah. And I, I later figured out that he had borrowed stuff from other songs and stuff, so he wasn't exactly helping me create original music. But the first things that I ever played on the guitar were my own words, and I, I started, you know, and and so everything that I've done as a musician has emanated from that, from being a songwriter first and foremost, as opposed to people who like pick up the guitar and they obsess on the guitar and they learn all the licks from all these, you know, and then guitar playing is the reason they get into music. I got into music to write songs and sing songs and the other aspects of musicianship came along with that and I became a really good musician over time mm-hmm. but I've been driven by songwriting rather than by performing per se or by um, being a guitarist or a singer per se he spends his whole work day unmanned and unnerved goes out every night for the fun he deserves Nine times out of ten he is way over-served And then he begins to declaim Of conspiracies, fake news, and blame And I say I Don't wanna be in your mood It's a role I'm not prepared to play. I don't want to be in your movie today. Coyote, there is just no comprehending these metaphors you're trying to put in play. And when I start to feel my patience when I know it's time to step away I don't want to be in your movie today It's a role I'm not prepared to play I don't want to be in your movie today As the years go on, it seems like at some point you almost started putting out more music and touring more. And I wanted you to just kind of take me up to maybe the year or two before the pandemic. You were out on the road more a musician, more than a journalist. Um, It seemed like that that was the trend. Well, it actually started in 1995 when Jerry Garcia died. Mm -hmm. That day, I thought... I, my life is going to change now. I wonder how much longer I'll be doing this radio show. Little did I know that it would become more popular after Jerry's death and that it would remain sustainable and that the Grateful Dead would become more popular in the decades after Jerry's death. In a way, this whole culture is bigger now, especially since 2015 when they did their anniversary, 50th anniversary send-off. Thing. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it just continued but i started thinking about what what am i going to do you know where what if 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 i'm going to if the grateful dead thing is going to wind down then what am i going to do and all i ever really wanted to do was play music and around that that time 
after Jerry's passing, the culture started to try and find new ways to address itself and to celebrate. Um, you know, in a very strange way, Peter, the whole music business came around to the Grateful Dead's way of doing things as record sales stopped being the driver of the industry and live gigging became the driver of the industry. Guess what? That's how the Grateful Dead always made their living. So their model became the, the way to go in, the, in this industry. And, and you had these festivals lined up. What, what did your 2020 look like at the beginning of the year before everything shut down? Well, was it going to be a good year for you? April of 2020 was going to be my busiest year, <laughs> my busiest month ever. And I had actually, I had actually overbooked. I don't, I don't like to be away. The, my, my longest I'm ever away. Because I had a home life, I, I was a radio producer who started touring. My wife married a radio producer who became a touring musician. Mm-hmm. And when the pandemic hit, my, the last time I went on the road to play a gig was March 5th. I went to Ojai to play a benefit. March 6th, I played at the Point San Pablo Harbor Club. And uh, um. On March 11th, everything started to shut down, and all the gigs started driving up, drying up one by one. And that whole month of April gradually got rolled up and put back in the closet. And then everything beyond that gradually got rolled up, put back in the closet, and nothing. Had you done a video show, a Zoom show? Was any of that your world? And at what point did it become your world? I had not really thought about doing it at all. The The... That stuff was being done on an industrial scale by the people in my culture, the nugs.net, and now there's fans.live. There are two super heavy major live streaming entities doing this stuff. And it just felt like a world that was not available to me. Hmm. And then, again, necessity drove me to start actually paying attention to what was going on out there. Necessity, what? Well, not being able to tour, not yeah. being able to play, I thought I'm gonna, I'll, I better look at doing stuff online. So as I said, I just decided to start playing every day just to see what happened. And I also sort of offered myself out to do like a private Zoom concerts. And I did two of those. Mm-hmm. And it just, it after I started playing every day, I lost, I, it didn't seem like I wanted to bother looking to make special event things and, and sell private uh, concerts that I would just play every day and pass the hat and see what happens. That became the satisfying thing. Again, I've sort of like not super. Uh, I don't know how to describe it. I'm. I've just been doing it. Yeah. I've tried to be as much of a bodhisattva as I could be about this stuff and not try to drive an outcome. And so. I mean, I've, I've, I've had, I have these other jobs, right? I'm producing a radio show every week, and I'm hosting a talk show on Sirius XM every week, and I'm trying to do, uh, you know, I, I'm trying, to, I'm remixing an album, my first record, I'm remixing. So I had stuff to do, mm-hmm. but I, I, I needed to try and make up some of the lost income from performing, but that was the only mission I had was to play every day to keep my music going and to try and make a few bucks doing it and beyond that I I had no I mean I resisted all the bullshit that that uh, Facebook throws at you to promote yourself <laughs> and buy ads and stuff I just I don't yeah I don't want to get into that game um, what about the community was there a point early on or did it slowly develop or you know quickly develop 
in terms of having this community where you're getting this great feedback and it becomes something kind of special? Well, I would look at the the um, Facebook page with the feed on it and see that the same people were there day after day. And there's this woman named Jill Swellville who's sort of the <laughs> ringleader of the green room. And I had she'd been already a fan of mine and a supporter of mine. She came to a, a gig in uh, upstate New York, my last my my last uh, big tour, I think of. The, the North was in 2019, and I met her at that gig. And so I, I knew she was a fan and a supporter, so she became one of those regulars and really became the, the organizer or the energy center for that thing. So, yeah, I noticed that there were people that were there every day, and I started interacting with them. And I also noticed that the contributions were coming in. I was averaging. There, there have been months when my bookkeeper told me I did as well as I would have netted after expenses if I'd gone on the road. And it's been enough money to, to make it feasible and to help keep my company from, you know, I haven't had to miss a paycheck through the pandemic mm. because there's been enough money coming in the tip jar. Again, I don't spend a lot of time, as you've probably observed, I don't spend a lot of time begging for money and I don't grind people about that. I, I mention it because I need to mention it, and I do well enough that I don't need to worry about trying to hype it up. done for your playing and I've, <laughs> I've heard you mention that you're getting better that playing for an hour every day is a good thing for you coming out of this pandemic we're going to have some great david gans concerts. <laughs> <laughs> well yeah i i my my life before this would be uh i'd go out on the road and i would play a gig There'd be a sound check, and there might be a little noodling backstage, and then I would play my gig, which was usually a 45-minute or a 60-minute or a 75-minute set, and then I might sit in with a band that's headlining or whatever. And then I would go back to my hotel and, and uh, you know, lather, rinse, repeat, day after day after day. Um, and when I got home from tour, I didn't always... Uh, I didn't want to set up my stuff and really like play through my performing rig as I do on the road, which is would have been a minimally professional thing for me to do once in a while is to rehearse for my tour. But I tended not to do it because I have other things to do and because I'm lazy. Mm -hmm. So my playing would be sort of paroxysmal, you know, for short stretches. And then I'd come home and not play at all for a week or I play just the acoustic I have in my living room or whatever. So... Playing every day means literally I'm playing every day and I'm playing for like an hour and a half every day because I turn on my rig and I 
get and I warm up and I rehearse things. I spend a half an hour before my set working things up to play during the show. So I'm actually doing a more <laughs> responsible, professional <laughs> job of being a musician in this circumstance than I ever did when I was a touring musician. And it's I've also um I, I've been revisiting my 50-plus year performing career, and as I said earlier, I've got all these songs that I still remember from when I was playing coffee houses in 1972, and songs that I played in bands in the 80s. You know, I just recently started playing Sultans of Swing again, which I used to play all the time with bands, you know. And so I'm, I'm just revisiting my entire musical life and remembering fun, obscure songs from back then and taking on new things, too, occasionally. I've got a few people that challenge me to do stuff. One of my favorite regulars is uh, has a standing order for more love and spoonful. So I recently... <laughs> I recently brought um, um, Do You Believe In... I've been playing Do You Believe In Magic, and I recently brought another one in, and I'm, I was, I'm starting to think about maybe doing uh, Darlin' Be Home Soon. <laughs> so I'm challenging myself and revisiting my entire life and also improvising. One of the, I consider myself a direct descendant of the Grateful Dead in that I give equal weight to improvisation, composition, and interpretation. So I mix up my own songs, songs from other sources that I suit to my own needs, and link it all together with jamming and stuff. So I'm playing something new every day and playing familiar stuff every day. And the, the refusal to repeat is a part of the deal. I'm constantly re inventing the order in which I do things because I don't plan ahead of time. I try to keep my thing completely spontaneous, which is a, a challenge when you're dealing with known objects of <laughs> but you're, art. You mentioned the feedback. You're also getting emails from people. Mm -hmm. um, we were up there, and you have a daily email from one of your followers yeah. with requests. Now, I'm sure in a concert, people are shouting out things. That always bugged me. But... Um, What's that like, having that feedback and having people, I'm, I'm sure, listening day after day after day, you're getting some some real specific feedback that you might not be getting touring. Uh, the, the coolest thing that happens in that whole deal is that these hearing my song lyrics quoted in conversations going by, knowing that these songs, I mean, I, I've had people request a song, you know, that the song tell me the song means a lot to them and stuff but just hearing phrases that i hatched come up in conversation is just immensely rewarding you know and um knowing that they like my songs as much as they like that other stuff you know i i feel like i'm in a way doing this sort of online piano bar for hippies <laughs> and it's fun to have regulars that request favorites and it's fun to be challenged to do new stuff and I keep myself challenged it's wonderful to know that they're doing this day after day and and Jesse who sends me a request almost every day usually has two or three that he wants to hear and he's totally cool if I don't get to them because he understands that sometimes the performance takes on a, a, a narrative of its own, and I'm following it. And that's another thing I, I, I would love to talk about, is that I keep track of what I have played, 
and I keep a spreadsheet of what I have played, and I have an aging report, as it were, and I delete the last four days' worth of songs <laughs> and then make a list of all the other songs, you know, that are available to play. And then I go through it before the show, like usually in the morning after breakfast. And I trim that list and put together today's song menu, which is three solid pages of songs that I might want to play today to give me sort of a, a dartboard of possibilities to refer to while I'm constructing my show on the fly. But sometimes... There, there are days when I have to, when I, it's, a song will end and I don't know what to play next. And then there are days when I can go through an entire show, whatever, and I, I start playing something almost without thinking about it. And I never don't know what the next song is going to be. And sometimes they flow from song to song. And it, that's a really, really great feeling. And then there'll be like two or three days when it's like, oh, what am I going to play next? Yeah. And it's not that I don't like what I'm doing. It's just that that I love that feeling when the narrative is constructing itself and I don't have to think about what order to do things in. And that's, again, that's something I took from The Grateful Dead, the sense that the performance is a story being told and the vocabulary of it is the songs and the improvisations and stuff. And I'm doing my best as a solo performer to have that same kind of experience. I'm smiling because there's like an 80% chance that the title of this podcast is going to be Online Piano Bar for Hippies. <laughs> that's, that's great. We'll be right back after this short break. How many, how many uh, shows have you done? And, and how many have you missed? How many days have you missed? I don't have the exact count. The first one I did was April 4th. Okay. I missed four, five or six days in last September because my wife and I went off to a camping trip. Mm -hmm. I missed a day for a colonoscopy. <laughs> uh, and I missed a couple of days for technical difficulties here and there. But I think I have played, I've maybe missed a total of maybe 12 to 15 days. I, I would have to go back and count. Out of out Probably of, 425 plus. Well, 365 plus how many days in, since April 4th, May, June, yeah. July. It's like another 90 day, a 400 and, somewhere around 450. Yeah. And I've kept statistics. I kept a spreadsheet. So I love this because you shared this with me. <laughs> and it's, again, the musician and journalist, the journalist you're doing a data scrape yeah. on your... <laughs> but it's it's a way to keep my show from falling into habit. And and yet, you it says something about what you've played the most. And what have you played the most? The, the last time I looked at the top 20, the top two were my own songs. Summer Blue by Roses. the Bay? No, Summer by the Bay, Summer by the Bay is up there. Blue Roses... And The Town That Still Believes in Magic are the two top. And I think the third song is Box of Rain. Uh -huh. And I, I, I started pulling the top 20, but then I, I looked at the top 50 a while back because there were too damn many Grateful Dead songs near the top. <laughs> um, I, my, I have, I think, 50 songs that I classify as originals. It includes two or three songs that I borrow from other people, like the Joe Burke song that I do and the mm -hmm. Jim Page song that I do. Um, but uh, songs that I'm responsible for, that I'm, I'm the, the main reason the world knows about these songs is because I'm doing them. And, and most of them are my own songs, but there are a few from other people. 
and then I probably have 75 Grateful Dead songs that I, I do, and, and of which probably about 30 or 40 of them are the ones that I do the most often. Uh, the Grateful Dead are, are my primary source uh, after years and years and years of playing their music in bands and stuff. And of course, being a scholar of Grateful Dead music, I've been listening to it forever. So of course, it's foremost in my mind after my own stuff. Followed by Beatles songs and Bob Dylan songs and a bunch of Jackson Brown songs in my repertoire and a few Cat Stevens songs. Those tend to be a little quaint for my current taste. Mm -hmm. Like I do Father and Son occasionally if somebody wants to hear it, but it just there isn't that much for me to do in that song anymore. And vocally, it's not that interesting for me to do. It meant a lot more to me when I was 21 than when I'm 67. Why well, I, I wanted to talk to you because you, you had a live show. Uh, oh yeah. How'd that go? I mean, you've been on Zoom however many hundred times at that point, and then uh, it'll it'll be you know weeks ago by the time this airs. But you had a live show. What was it like getting back? How did it feel? How have you changed? It was way easy. I mean, there were some technical difficulties putting the sound system together, but once once it got going, it was easy. And I was a little worried about it. I was worried about playing a three-hour show. Play, like two one and a half hour sets or whatever after playing in the 60 to 75 minute range for a year and a half and having unlimited dynamic range at home I mean I said something about it today in my show that I had the freedom I could play all the whispering stuff for a solid hour if I wanted to you know, I have the dynamic range. I can play Chuck Berry songs with three layers of guitar on them, and then I can play something really, really quiet that's like an unplugged guitar and everything in between. And I don't have that much range in a live show. You have to be louder. The noise floor is a lot higher in a live show because you have to reach people much farther away. I'm yeah. addressing a microphone right here at home. But I... I started going and I didn't take a break. We were late getting going because of this PA problem. I was supposed to play from like, I think it was 6.30 to, or 5.30 to 8.30 and we finally got started a little closer to 6. So I just played straight through. I didn't feel the need to take a break. And there was a play structure right off to the side of the stage <laughs> that had 24 kids on it screaming at the top of their lungs <laughs> and that didn't bother me either. <laughs> And I, I, it was it was the sweetest experience. I, I you know I made money. I had a great time. My wife was there. All these people were there. And I, I I'm so looking forward to getting to play in. So what does that make you think about the live stream? How long is it going to go on? Um, I'm you know little surprised you're doing it now, but I get less and less surprised the more you talk about it and the more I learn about what it's meant to you. I think I'm just going to keep doing it as long as I can. Um, the next extended departure is going to be, well, we're going back to that same, uh, we're going up to uh, Gray Eagle to go camping for a, a, a few days mm -hmm. in September. Uh, I'm taking a couple of days off on August. I do have another gig at a festival mm -hmm. on August 7th. I'm going August 6th. I'm going to take the day off and drive up to Willits, spend the night, and then play a festival in Laytonville on the 7th. So I'm going to miss two days that weekend, but I'll be home Sunday in time to do Tales from the Golden Road and resume my live streams. Um, I'm playing at the Cannery Tap and Restaurant in Castro Valley uh, on 
July 22nd, but I think I'm just going to live stream that show because <laughs> yeah. the owner of the place is a friend of mine and he says it's, you know, he, he'll hook me up with internet or whatever. So I'm just going to keep doing the live stream for as long as it makes sense to do it. And the, the criteria are, am I enjoying it? Are people watching it? And it are a few dollars dribbling in. Yeah. And, and all of those criteria are being met at the moment and they, they seem like they're going to continue to be, be mad. All right, Jesse wanted to hear this. I'll close with this. thousand foot view what's what's this community meant to you what's the last year meant to you i've said this several times in in public statements i have never felt more heard and appreciated and loved as a performer than i am right now that thing about having people quote my songs in their lives that that's that's you know that's why I came to this planet was to to tell stories to to make something and I mean I, I don't it's not like I think I'm all that important or anything but it turns out that my mission in life was to write songs and sing them mm-hmm. and to do so successfully and and also I've you know, this is something I've observed after all these years of journalism and stuff the the whole nature of uh, how to become a successful musician has been turned on its head. I mentioned earlier that the touring to support CD sales model is long gone, and now you give away CDs to support your tour. And so that whole thing has been reversed. And the the um, uh, the performers, the, the recording artists were mysterious. You only saw them when they came to a show or they might do an in-store in a record store. They might do an interview in a magazine. But you didn't have access to those people. And and they were there there were they were mysterious and inaccessible. One, the the joke that I have to sum this up is would there be a Steely Dan today if Donald Fagan had had to do meet and greets in the nineteen seventies? You know? I'm I'm a, an extrovert. I love being out there with people. So being mysterious and aloof isn't part of my nature as a musician. So my nature is suited to this moment because the interaction and the loving being with people is part of it. And there's no need for me to be a, a private person or to be a, a, apart from them. I'm I'm I want to you know. I I I my I also have a running joke like you know if there's there's a couple dozen people that really love me on this level and a few hundred thousand of those and I could make a living at it, yeah. but it's sufficient you know to I have like I I could have held out for ways to reach more people or make more money doing live streams in fact I I I just decided not to try to figure out how to move it over to TikTok or YouTube or whatever because this is sufficient. And mm-hmm. I was getting my needs met. 
and having a great time doing it. So I did not form the ambition to expand it because this is so satisfying and so pleasant. Mm. And I, I love these people, and I've met some of them in person, and I'm looking forward to meeting more of them in person. And look what they've done for me. Yeah. Well, I think it's a great story, and um, it was wonderful to watch you live, and, uh, um, and I appreciate you coming on Total SF. I'm thrilled that you took an interest, Peter. It's been fun interacting with you over the course of this project, and I'm really happy that you're going to give me some attention in places where I don't usually get it. <laughs> Excellent. Well, thank you for inviting me in your home and your backyard, and uh, it's nice to be back in Oakland. <laughs> Come on back sometime. My bag is sinking low, and I do believe it's time to get back to Miss Fanny. You know she's the only one who sent me here with You are listening to the San Francisco Chronicle. Thank you to David Gans, my guest today. We shook it up with the music this week, Summer by the Bay and Your Movie by David Gans, his cover of Wharf Rat by the Grateful Dead, and The Weight by the Band, which is what you're listening to right now. Cable Car Bell Ringing, as always, by eight-time champion Byron Cobb. Support Total SF in the newsroom that creates it, and consider getting a digital Chronicle edition, less expensive than you think, at sfchronicle.com slash pod. All right, then. Thank you all so much for being here today. I appreciate your support in every form that it takes, and I will see you again tomorrow at 4 o'clock California time. At the same place you're looking at it now. Thank you again. Please do tell your friends, and I'll see you tomorrow. <laughs>